We'll hear argument first this morning in case 10238, Arizona Free Enterprise Club Freedom Club PAC versus Bennett and the consolidated case. Mr. Moore. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court, this case is about whether the government may insert itself into elections and manipulate campaign spending to favor its preferred candidates. Arizona does this in a manner that is even more burdensome to free speech than the law at issue in Davis versus FEC. Arizona burdens the law of three groups that pose no threat of corruption under this Court's precedence, independent expenditure groups, self-financed candidates, and candidates who raise private funds under one of the lowest contribution limits in the nation. Under Davis versus FEC and this Court's well-established precedence, the matching funds provision is unconstitutional and should be struck down. Mr. Maurer, do you don't have any um, objection, you wouldn't have any objection, if Arizona trebled the amount at the outset. In other words, there was a maximum amount, the so-called matching funds. If it were given all in one lump and the publicly funded candidate was told, give it back if you don't use it, that would be okay. That would be constitutional under Davis, Your Honor. This case is not about whether the State of Arizona may provide campaign financing using public funds, nor is it about whether uh, the ability of Arizona to ensure that those who receive the public funds can run effective campaigns. What this case is about is whether the government can turn my act of speaking into the vehicle by which my political opponents benefit with direct government subsidies. Could I try to understand that argument a little bit better, Mr. Moorer? Suppose, and I know that you think that this is not the case, but just bear with the hypothetical. Suppose that there were, in fact, no deterrent effect on your speech or on the speech of any candidate. In other words, that people thought, well, you know, I'd rather be, have uh, me be the only person who talks, but, uh, but I'd rather talk than be silent, even if it means my opponent can talk, too. So that there's no deterrent effect from this law whatsoever. Would there still be a constitutional objection? Your Honor, in Davis, this Court recognized that a trigger like this, a, a law that turns the choice of my choice of, to speak effectively into fundraising advantages for my opponents, constitutes a substantial burden. So even if candidates continue to speak, the law constitutes a substantial burden on their speech. Well, it constitutes a substantial burden. So even if every single person makes a choice, yes, I want to continue to speak, it does not chill any, speak, I supp- any speech. I suppose I'm not sure what it means to constitute a substantial burden if, in fact, the law does not chill speech. Well, Your, Your Honor, this Court in Davis recognized that when the government reaches into a campaign and attempts to manipulate campaign financing in order to, uh, uh, in order to uh, basically effectuate the outcome, uh, that constitutes a, an illegitimate governmental purpose. Mr. Moore, suppose, uh, suppose the government imposes a fine of $500 for all political speech, and people nonetheless continue to engage in political speech and pay the $500. Would that make the $500 penalty for political speech constitutional? No, it would not, Your Honor. But, but in fact, there's no such restriction here, is there, Mr. Moore? There's no restriction at all here. It's more speech all the way around. Uh, I would disagree with that respectfully, Your Honor. There is a restriction here. Every time an independent expenditure group or a privately financed candidate speaks above a certain amount, the government creates real penalties for them to have engaged in unfettered political expression. Well, doesn't the government actually just uh, give a selective subsidy? It's not a penalty. It's just saying... Uh, in order to, f- to run an effective public financing system, when you speak, we're going to give a subsidy uh, over a certain amount. So the trigger does not trigger a penalty. It triggers a subsidy. Your Honor, in Davis, this Court recognized that in the context of competitive elections, which are a zero-sum game, what benefits one candidate will burden necessarily or harm the other candidate. Didn't they call it a subsidy in Davis? I, if I recall the argument, I think that's what, what it was characterized as there, too. Did they characterize it as a penalty? I doubt it. 
In, in fact, it was not a subsidy in Davis, Your Honor. The, the effect of this law is considerably harsher than the, the law at issue in Davis. In Davis, the non-millionaires uh, candidate still had to go out and actually raise the funds that the millionaires amendment permitted him to raise. Uh, in this case, the law provides direct government subsidies based on my act of speaking to my political opponents. Uh, there is, a, though, a significant difference between Davis and this case. What the uh, expenditure triggered in Davis was a discriminatory restriction that would never be allowed in and of itself. What the law triggers here is something that, as Justice Ginsburg said, the government could do from the get-go which is subsidize the speech of a candidate who decides to participate in a public financing system. Well, uh, Your Honor, the, uh, I would point out that independent expenditure groups do not have that choice of participating in the subsidy or not. So to the extent that Davis relied on the fact that there was a discriminatory treatment of speakers in the same race, this case, uh, this law replicates and actually uh, exacerbates the harm that was ish- at issue in Davis. But there's no particular... Uh, uh, as applied challenge from independent speakers in this uh, lawsuit, is there? Yes, there is, Your Honor. I represent two independent expenditure groups. Uh, my, my understanding was that the suit was brought as a facial challenge to the entire law. This is a facial and as applied challenge, Your Honor. In, in this case, um, do you think the law is content neutral within its own universe? It, applies just to political speech, so it's not content-neutral in that, in that sense. But within the scheme that it sets up, is it content-neutral? Absolutely not, Your Honor. Why? Uh, because the only thing that will trigger matching funds, particularly for independent expenditure groups, are, is the content of the message. If an, an independent expenditure group speaks in favor of a privately financed candidate, they will not trigger matching funds. If they speak against a publicly financed candidate, they will trigger matching funds. That not is only content-based, it is also a rejection of the standard this Court enunciated in Citizens United that the government cannot make distinguishing uh, burdens on the basis of an identity of a speaker. In Justice Ginsburg's hypothetical, I'm still trying to think about it. Uh, suppose there is one, account, one candidate for the, um, for the pink party and then three candidates for the Orange Party. Uh, and all three candidates for the Orange Party received uh, the, the lump sum Justice Ginsburg was talking about. Uh, it, but there's only one candidate on the other side, and he has to face, or she has to face, three funded. Be- Is that constitutional? It, it, it would not be, I'm sorry, it would be constitutional under Davis. And I, and I think that the point, um, Your Honor, is respect- I, I didn't understand the hypothetical. You <laughs> really did. One, one person is on one side, three people are on the other side. And under the Arizona law, uh, if the three people on the other side are all participating candidates, each of them uh, gets a bonus if there's only one person speaking on behalf of the non-participating candidate, right? Yes, that's absolutely true. All right. So uh, $10,000 by the non-participating candidate triggers off $30,000 against him. That's exactly right. All right. In the Justice Ginsburg hypothetical, wouldn't you have the same problem? Well, in, 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 in different terms, in that one candidate faces three people, all of whom are funded by the, uh, by the government. Well, this case is not challenging a public financing system. And the- I'm, I'm just asking, as a theoretical matter, whether there would be a constitutional problem in the case that I put under Justice Ginsburg's hypothetical. Not under Davis, Your Honor. How about not under Buckley? Not under the First Amendment. <laughs> There may be there may be instances where a public financing law is so lopsided that it creates a coercive effect. And Buckley was quite clear that the one of the things that was uh, acceptable about the public financing system at issue in that case was that it was voluntary. Um, but in this case, we're dealing with a very different type of uh, First Amendment harm. The trigger matters, Your Honors. It, it is, in fact, determinative. It is exactly the same kind of trigger. I thought that what, the point of Buckley was that the public funding, which you could accept or reject, that the, the justification for it was that it increased rather than decreased speech. 
And the I think you quite right in recognizing that matching funds, this Court has said, do not conflict with the with the First Amendment. Your Honor, if I if I had said that, I was I'm mistaken. not matching funds. Public funding. Oh, okay. <laughs> Public, funding. Public funding. And so, if it turns out that the state's public funding isn't being used because um, because the limits are low, and yet the the state wants to conserve the public fisc, so instead of just increasing the amount at the outset, it says we, the the object is the same, but we're economizing by not giving it out. In one lump sum, we're giving it out in installments. Your Honor, in Riley versus National Federation for the Blind, this Court recognized that the, that the government cannot sacrifice speech for efficiency. And what, if we accept the holding of Davis versus FEC and accept that that is still a, a holding that is viable under the First Amendment, then what the uh, the position of the respondents is is that they in fact can sacrifice free speech in order to uh, be more efficient. But can you, can you tell me on that? Because I take it you agree with Justice Ginsburg about Buckley. In Buckley, the Court says, public financing as a means of eliminating the improper influence of large private corporations furthers a significant government interest. We both agree that's what it says. Yes, that's, I take what it, that's what it means. All right, now, your objection is how much do they pay? No. Here they have a trigger, not not quantitatively, but here they say it's okay to finance a public candidate publicly. Okay to do that. Now, what we're going to do is give them a million dollars to start with, up to three million, to spend, depending on how much their opponents spend. Now, you think that's unconstitutional. My question to you is, what would be a constitutional system, in your opinion? Your Honor, that would be helpful. Sure. Your Honor, in Buckley, this Court recognized the I'm not interested in Buckley. I'm interested in your opinion. You object to the amount being paid in installments. What, in your opinion, would be a constitutional system? I don't need to repeat my question, which I just did, but I want that an- your answer to that. I assume your opinion can be based upon Buckley, however. Yes, the presidential financing system is constitutional, Your Honor. Um, and I would also, I would also um, respectfully um, disagree with your characterization that the, uh, the nature of our objection has to do with the fact that our opponents are receiving money. The problem here is not that our, the opponents of my clients are receiving money. It's what triggers that. And what triggers that is my exercise of my free speech rights. Would there be anything unconstitutional about a system that worked roughly like this? At the beginning, at some point prior to each election cycle, uh, the uh, commission that supervises this law would make a calculation about how much money would be needed for a candidate in a gubernatorial race or a state senate race or uh, uh, an assembly race, if that's what it's called in Arizona, to get that candidate's message out to the electorate, and that would be the amount of the public funding, period. That would be a constitutional system, Your Honor. There is no constitutional objection, or at least we're not raising any constitutional objection to the idea that there is a — that uh, public financing means that people can't run effective races. You can have a public financing system with sufficient funds to run an effective race, but what you cannot do is exactly what Arizona has done, which is turn my act of speaking into the vehicle by which my political opponents benefit. But that's interesting, Mr. Moore, because I don't see all that much of a difference between Justice Alito's hypothetical and the facts here. In other words, you said that Justice Alito's hypothetical would be constitutional, even though under Justice Alito's hypothetical, the state is trying to figure out how much money it takes to run a competitive race and giving people who uh, enter the public financing system that amount of money. That's exactly what the state is doing here, but it's doing it in actually a more accurate way. So if Justice Alito's hypothetical is constitutional, why isn't this? They're both trying to do the same thing, which is to put 
sufficient money in the hands of people who enter the public financing system in order to run a competitive race? Your Honor, one of the things that would distinguish that is that it, it, Justice Alito's hypothetical completely divorces the, the amount of the grant from my political activity or the political activity of people who don't want to or cannot take uh, public funds in Arizona. Well, I think to the contrary, Justice Alito's hypothetical, just uh, the state is estimating how much a person will spend. Here, the state is measuring how much a person will spend. The only difference is that one is more accurate than the other. Your, Your Honor, I believe the distinction would lie in the fact that the purpose of this law is not to provide necessarily uh, the ability of candidates to run effective publicly financed candidate campaigns. The purpose of this law is to limit spending in elections and to level the playing field. Justice Alito's hypothetical I think the purpose of this law is to prevent corruption. That's what the purpose of all public financing systems are. Your Honor, I would respectfully disagree that the purpose of this law is to prevent corruption, and I would like to read from uh, the executive director of the Clean Elections Commission, who said that it cannot be disputed that the purpose of the Clean Elections Act is to equalize the playing field and to give participating candidates equal opportunity to get their message out, which is at Joint Appendix 236. Well, Mr. Moore, some people may use certain buzzwords and other people don't use those buzzwords, but isn't it true that for 40 years what public financing systems have been based upon is the idea that when there is a lot of private money floating around the political system, that candidates and then public office holders get beholden to various people who are giving that money and make actions uh, based on how much they receive from those people. And that's the idea of a public financing system, is to try to prevent that. Well, that is the basis of public financing systems in general, but this system does not actually address that, because this Court had the contrary argued here. I'm, I'm sure that in some of the public financing cases that we've heard argued, it was asserted that the purpose was to level the playing field and that and that, that was an entirely valid purpose. I, I, I'm, I'm unaware that all public financing laws have had as their purpose uh, uh, simply to uh, avoid corruption. Your Honor, it, uh, when this law was uh, promoted, when it was drafted, when it was propagated and, and uh, uh, and campaigned about to the people of the state of Arizona, it was presented as doing two things, leveling the playing field and limiting spending in campaigns. It wasn't until this Court's decision in, in Davis that the uh, state of Arizona suddenly discovered that the purpose of the law was actually to uh, fight corruption, or the primary purpose was to actually but fight corruption. what about with the, all the background of there had been a number of scandals in Arizona? There had been vote buying. I thought that that was part of the origin of this law, that it was not, as you now say, had nothing to do with corruption. I thought it emerged out of that, those startling incidents of, of people actually selling their votes. Well, they were selling their votes for outright bribes, Your Honor. They weren't selling them for campaign contributions. And if this law was aimed at the single narrow exception that this Court recognized uh, to, the, to the general principle that restrictions on political activity violate the First Amendment, then they would not have uh, structured this law in the way that they did, which is to burden the speech of three political speakers that pose no threat of corruption under this Court's precedence. Counsel, you keep — I just want to understand exactly what you claim the burden is, because I thought that what the circuit and courts below said was that there was no evidence that any candidate actually didn't speak or didn't fundraise because of this law. There's some — claims to the contrary in your briefs before us, but I've looked for that below, and there doesn't appear to be any record of that. So I'm going to start from that type, that assumption, that there was no evidence in the courts below that any candidate stopped speaking because of or stopped collecting money because of this. So exactly what is the burden otherwise? What are you claiming the burden is? The burden is that the, that the government is choosing to give someone else money 
No, Your Honor. First, I would respectfully disagree with the characterization of the Ninth Circuit of the evidence uh, produced at the district court. There was considerable evidence of uh, people not making expenditures, of uh, slowing their their, uh, fundraising, as as one of my clients put it, to a crawl in order to avoid uh, triggering matching funds. But even if that were relevant, uh, the, or even if that, ex- that material did not exist, uh, in Davis, this Court recognized that the inherent structure of the Act constitutes a substantial burden on speech because it presents the choice of having to either engage I, I want to go, not rely on Davis, but just articulate for me, assuming my hypothetical, the burden is that you have to delay fundraising or delay expenditures because you're choosing to do so. We are not choosing to do so. We're, we are being coerced into do, doing so. No, by if the you spend it, if you spend it at the time you want or you collect it at the time you want, no one's, the law is not telling you not to do it. You find it an advantage not to do it, correct? No. If your opponent won't speak as loud and won't respond, correct? Uh, I, I would respectfully disagree, Your Honor. Um, what the harm in delaying your speech is, is that in order to minimize the, the, the triggering of substantial, and I, would, and I would also add, unfair benefits to a publicly financed candidate based on one's act of unfettered political expression, candidates and independent expenditure groups all testified, all the petitioners testified, that they delayed speaking in order to minimize uh, the effect of matching funds. And suppose, the, the, suppose the Court, after this argument, sent you a letter saying, if you would like to file an additional brief, uh, you have the opportunity to do so, and we're not going to allow your opponent to file a brief. Would you take advantage of that opportunity? Uh, all, thing, all else things being equal, yes, Your Honor. Now, if we said, you can file an extra brief, but if you do that, your opponent will also be able to file an extra brief. Would that figure in your thinking? Uh, it certainly would, Your Honor. And under Arizona's system, if you applied Arizona's system uh, to this hypothetical, not only would Mr. Phillips be able to file an additional brief, but the State of Arizona would be able to file an additional brief. And the Solicitor's General's Office would be able to file an additional brief. And anybody who weighed in on the other side would be able to file an additional brief. That's the very nature of this law in that it creates it, it is entirely structured to create disincentives, as the proponents of this act were quite clear it was, to create disincentives on people speaking or engaging in political activity more than the government preferred. Do you think it would be a fair characterization of this law to say that its purpose and its effect are to um, uh, uh, produce less speech in political campaigns? Uh, I believe that that is a, uh, a goal, and I believe that's the effect. The entire, uh, the entire motivation of this law was to limit, the, limit spending in leveling the playing field. Limiting spending indicates that they wanted less political speech in the state of Arizona, and that's what they've got. You think that uh, if Joe Smith doesn't have much money, takes public finance at all, that that could discourage some other people Brown and Johnson from running? No, I don't believe so. No, there's not, it's not going to, the, it's not going to be a situation where government paying a million dollars to Smith to help him in the campaign would discourage some other person from running? Um, I don't believe so, Your Honor. It, it, it's if, a- if we, if we, if we say, uh, you can file a brief, uh, and, uh, uh, if you do, other people can file, is that my, Forget the briefs. It's too far-fetched. <laughs> All right. Uh, it, Very clear, however. I did, think you'd give, I did think you'd give the other answer, to tell you the truth, because I just don't see why giving somebody a million dollars might not discourage a, a poorer candidate from running. Well, Your Honor, uh, the courts that have looked at public financing systems, including uh, Bu- uh, the Buckley Court, notice or, or were made clear that one of the things that constitutes a constitutional uh, public financing system is its voluntariness. At certain margins, no, no, Joe, the guy who wants it, it's voluntary for him, but his opponents can't do, do anything about that. I'm just saying, Joe takes the money. 
So Brown and Smith say, oh, my God, he has a million dollars. Forget it. I'll stay home. I well, won't run. And you say that just doesn't happen. I Never happened. Okay. I and I gather that people who have looked into the Arizona scheme also say what you think will happen never happens either. Your, Your Honor. So should we look at both instances? Your Honor, it's not the question of people uh, being dissuaded from running because their opponent may be able to mount an effective campaign. The issue is the government turning my speech into the vehicle by which my entire political message is undercut. And if there are no further questions, I'd like to reserve the remainder of my time. Thank you, Counsel. Mr. Phillips. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court, public funding of elections results in more speech and more electoral competition and directly furthers the government's compelling interest in combating real and apparent corruption in politics. Uh, there was a suggestion in response, I believe, to Justice Kagan's question that this law was not intended to combat corruption. Um, but well, I counsel, how, the supposition that it results in more speech, let's take the independent expenditure example. You have one candidate running against three others. There's an independent expenditure on behalf of the one candidate. That means, say, $10,000. That means each of the other three get $10,000 of their own. Now, that might promote more speech, but the effect may well be for the independent expenditure to say, I'm not going to spend the money, and so the other candidates don't get the money, and you have less speech. Well, Your Honor, what I say is it would result in more speech, certainly, if all of the candidates got the $10,000. There's no evidence in the record if anyone actually not spend any independent group not spending money either in that circumstance or any other circumstance. How would, what would that evidence look like? The evidence would, would simply look plausibly even just someone saying that they didn't spend money because of that, although that would be not very hard evidence. But there isn't even that sort of evidence with respect to independent groups here, Your Honor, and it's, it makes sense. Well, other than somebody saying it, I'm just curious what the evidence would look like. You're, it's, you're proving a negative. You're saying, well, the, this person didn't do something because of this, and that's pretty hard to do. I, th that's possibly true, Your Honor. The statistical data, however, here indicates that independent expenditures have, in fact, gone up since the implementation of matching funds in Arizona. That obviously doesn't directly address the three-candidate situation. I acknowledge that. But there's no evidence that independent expenditures have been suppressed at all, Your Honor. And I would think the question here, Your Honor, is — May, may I ask how it, how it combats corruption unless it suppresses large contributions it by certain entities? I mean, I can understand you say, well, it'll stop big donors from uh, uh, giving $10 million to somebody's campaign and having that person in his pocket. But that — that donor is still going to have that, that senator or whoever it is just as much indebted to him if he gives $10 million, regardless of whether everybody else gets $10 million as well. How does it, how does it combat corruption unless, unless the other side is correct that its whole purpose is to suppress the contribution of $10 million, to make it unworthwhile for anybody to give $10 million? Your Honor, Arizona's triggered matching funds provision combats corruption in the same manner that public funding combats corruption, because that the law is designed to encourage candidates to accept public funding because it offers a viable public funding option to them while conserving the state's resources. And public funding serves the anti-corruption rationale in two fundamental ways. First, it frees the candidates who accept public funding from the need to accept potentially corrupting Well, there are states that have public funding without having a matching fund provision. I would appreciate it if you would compare these two regimes. The first is exactly what Arizona has now. The second is exactly what Arizona has now, minus the matching fund provision. So under the second one, you have very strict uh, contribution limits, and you have reporting of all contributions. Now, why does the addition of the matching fund provision serve an anti-corruption interest? Where I think for the same reasons I believe that are implicit in the Buckley Court's upholding of public funding at the same time that the Court upheld contribution limits and disclosure requirements, I think implicitly therefore holding that the three could go together serving the anti-corruption interest. And I think it does that first by, free, first by freeing, as I said, freeing the publicly funded candidates from the need even to take the limited privately 
private contributions that would be allowed under the law, in which this Court has never held there's a minimum at which that no longer conceivably becomes corrupting. But secondly, it promotes — it combats corruption by providing for more candidates running, more political speech, and more electoral competition, all of which have happened in Arizona. And where you have more candidates and more electoral competition, you have less — you are going to have less corruption. The record so, — So the idea is this is a way of encouraging candidates to take the public financing, right? Yes. Well, would it encourage more candidates to do that if you doubled the amount that was available for every additional amount that the privately financed candidate spends? He spends $1,000 over the amount, and the publicly financed candidate gets $2,000. A lot more people are going to do the publicly financing route, if that were the case. It, it would encourage them more, Your Honor. It's not our contention that anything that a State or Congress did to encourage public funding would necessarily be constitutional. I think the question — would be different if it were a two-to-one or, to make a more stark contrast, a ten-to-one match. I think that would raise multiple questions. One question would be, looking at the statute in its entirety, has the public funding scheme become coercive rather than voluntary? It would raise the question whether the purpose of the law were really to simply provide viable funding to candidates. But that's but kind instead, of an odd line to find in the First Amendment, isn't it, that you get — 100 percent matching as opposed to, say, 110 percent or 150 percent. Somewhere in the First Amendment, the line is drawn on the amount? I think somewhere in the First Amendment there is a line, Your Honor, implicit in Buckley, where a public funding law provides such substantial benefits without sufficient countervailing burdens to publicly funded candidates that it becomes coercive rather than voluntary, and therefore you have coerced someone into accepting a spending limit, which I believe would be certainly subject to strict scrutiny and almost certainly unconstitutional. Uh, and I think that is — the Court would need to assess that in each instance, and I, and I think it could be done. Um, I don't, certainly don't think that here you have a coercive system. A third of the candidates don't accept public funding, and most of those who don't and accept and face publicly funded candidates actually win. So it doesn't work? Well, it certainly — it doesn't work in the sense, Your Honor, if, if the goal were for everyone to accept public funding. It doesn't work in that sense, but it certainly works in the sense that two-thirds of the candidates do, and it works in the sense that there hasn't been a repeat of the public corruption scandals in Arizona since the law was passed. Well, do you, really do you think that one reason for people to decline uh, participation in the program is because they do not want to deter independent expenditures? The, no, I, and, and, and let me we'll, — we'll talk about independent expenditures for just a uh, a, a few minutes, if you don't mind. You indicated independent expenditure has gone up. I thought there was some data in the record to show that population has gone up, and, and, and so there's an argument about that. But just as a common-sense matter, uh, if I'm someone with an, uh, the capacity and the will to make an independent expenditure, why don't I think twice if this just is going to generate uh, uh, an equal amount on, on the other side, which might be better spent? Uh, the, uh, sometimes an independent expenditure is not really that effective. It's in a bad market. It's a bad message. Uh, but this results in cash uh, to the participating candidate, who then can use it in the most effective way. Your Honor, um, independent — And all, all of which is a, designed to, to probe this idea that this somehow does not deter independent expenditures. I, I frankly — uh, am tentatively of the opposite view, so you can, you can tell me about that. Well, Your Honor, independent expenditure groups there's, there's no evidence, in fact, that it really has been deterred. Uh, Your Honor, independent expenditure groups essentially have to take their candidates as they find them, if you will. There's no discrimination among uh, someone who is speaking in favor of a privately financed candidate and one who is speaking in favor of a participating candidate. The different treatment is the different treatment of the candidates. Someone who speaks against a privately financed candidate runs the risk that that person is going to use the ad against them to do all of the things that the public finance candidate may not do. He can raise private contributions. He can take money from his political party. He can spend his own money. And he can spend unlimited amounts of money. I don't know how you can say that there's no evidence that it's been deterred. What, is something true just because you say it? There, there are in the briefs statistical evidence of how much uh, the population of Arizona has increased and how, how, how much less since the enactment of this law the total expenditures have been increased. There was testimony in the, in the district court 
from individuals who said that they withheld their contributions because of this. Uh, it's, it's obvious statistically also that many of the expenditures were made late in the game where perhaps they were not as effective in order to be unable to trigger uh, the matching funds in time for the, uh, the opposing candidate to do anything about it. I, 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 I do not understand how you can say that there is no evidence. I mean, maybe you, you might say, I do not find the evidence persuasive, but don't tell me there's no evidence. Maybe I should say there's no significant evidence, Your Honor. But with respect to each of the items that you mentioned, with respect to the population point, Your Honor, there is no evidence in the record, and it does not make sense, that expenditures, either by candidates or by independent groups, would increase proportionally to the population of a state, because most of the expenses of campaign are, are well, fixed. Island has the same fixed. expenditures as New York State? No, no, no Your you, Honor, you of don't course expect not. the two to... To have any relationship? Of course not, Your Honor. I don't suggest that there's no relationship between population and expenditures, but you wouldn't expect it to go up proportionally, which is what the argument that the petitioners make is, that it didn't go up proportionally. Uh, and you wouldn't expect that, particularly given that you don't know what the demographics of the population increase have been in Arizona and elsewhere in the country. But with respect to the evidence of individuals, there are two petitioner independent committees in this case, Your Honor, the Arizona Taxpayers Action Committee and the Arizona Free Enterprise Club. At Joint Appendix 584 is the testimony of the first that they never withheld money from a race because of matching funds and can't recall any contributor to them doing so. And the Arizona Free Enterprise Club at Joint Appendix 666 and 670, the Treasurer testified that matching funds never caused them not to make a contribution and that the PAC to which they contribute at JA 670, didn't recall making a decision not to spend money because of matching funds. With respect to that, there's a back and forth about the record and common sense. As a matter of common sense, I think this has already been asked, if you knew that a $10,000 expenditure that you would make that would support a candidate would result in $30,000, $40,000, $50,000, depending on how many opposition candidates there were, uh, available for them, wouldn't you think twice about it? I, I might think twice about it, Your Honor, but first, I think tw thinking twice is not a severe burden. I think I might think twice in some circumstances if I knew that by spending a certain amount of money I had to disclose the fact that I was doing that and what my political views were and lose my anonymity. But thinking twice, this Court has held in that okay. circumstance, doesn't create a severe burden. And we would submit that thinking twice here. Well, if you're thinking twice and one way you're thinking is not to do it, that sounds like a sufficient burden. Well, Your Honor, if it were a sufficient burden, it would presumably have been a sufficient burden with respect to disclosure, where this Court has recognized that some people may not spend or contribute because of the disclosure. Well, our cases, as you know, have drawn a distinction between expression and disclosure. Yes, yes, Your Honor, but the point I'm making is, is that the disclosure, this Court has recognized, potentially chills, deters the expression. Are, are you so, saying that anything that has to be disclosed can also be prohibited? I mean, I, I just don't see the equivalence here. No, Your Honor, I wasn't suggesting that. I mean, but it I, seems to me that this, that this law has a severe uh, criticisms level at it, severe legal invalidities alleged, uh, quite without reference to disclosure. Well, I, I, Your Honor, I, I was making the analogy to disclosure in the sense of the think twice notion that, that, that Mr. Chief Justice raised. Um, but I don't think that I don't think this creates any more of a burden, indeed we would submit less of a burden than a disclosure requirement. You would expect someone who believes that their speech is more persuasive than the other participants in the race, whether they be an independent group or a candidate, to choose more speech because they think that if I speak even if the other people speak, my message is going to get out there and it's going to be preferable. There may be some few candidates, although there's not a record of that here, some few groups or candidates who would decide that be, they would prefer less speech. It's better for me if my opponent or the other can, the candidate doesn't speak more because he's going to be more persuasive than I am. Well, that focus is so on persuasive. Your focus on persuasiveness is a particular view of the political process that may not be applicable in every case. The political scientists sometimes tell you that it's not persuasion, but simply uh, playing to your base, getting them more active in, actively involved. And so it's not a somewhat more academic view that people are going to sit down and just regard which one is persuasive. Is that a permissible objective for the state to pursue? 
to, to value a particular view of the electoral process over another? Your Honor, I don't think that, that the State is doing that. What I'm addressing is the effect of the law, and I think Your Honor makes a good point, which is that they assume, petitioners assume that essentially that this is a zero-sum game and that because if I spend $10,000, the other guy is going to get $10,000 to respond, that somehow that's a wash. Well, it's not a wash first because I think my speech is more persuasive, so I'm going to do it anyway because I'd rather get it out there. And secondly, because I may be spending my $10,000 on getting out my voters. Um, and I, I need to do that regardless. And that's why you don't see in the statistics any evidence that this actually suppresses speech. And as I said, there may be some few candidates who would opt for less speech because it's strategically better for them. But we would submit that but that — even if it is the case that those candidates who choose not to participate are willing to spend additional money even though it triggers matching funds, I don't see what that proves. A candidate who's deciding whether to participate or not presumably makes a calculation at the beginning. Do I want to spend more than the matching fund amount, even though I know that if I do that, the other side will get additional money? Now, if they say no, I don't, I'm not going to do it under those circumstances, they'll take the public financing. And if they choose the private financing, it means they've probably made a decision going in that they're going to, they're going to be one of those who is willing to, uh, suffer the consequences of spending over the amount. So I don't see what this — I don't see what that proves. But, Your Honor, I think what it proves is that you — the key point in here is that initial choice that is voluntarily made by each of the candidates, whether the system of public financing under which you may receive matching funds is better for them well, or whether the I, system — Could I ask a question that goes back to Justice Kennedy's question, which I don't think you uh, fully — had a chance to uh, fully answered, and that has to do with the independent expenditures. Let's say there are two candidates running for governor, and one who is a participating candidate is taking a position on a very controversial Arizona issue with which I disagree, and the other is a non-participating candidate who's taking a position on that controversial issue, and I agree with that. Now, if I choose to <clears throat> run an ad, pay for an ad supporting the non-participating candidate, uh, I know that uh, the, the candidate that I dislike on that issue is going to get an additional amount of funds. And, but if I choose to run an ad supporting the participating candidate, the, the opposite doesn't happen. Now, why isn't that a clear-cut discrimination based on the content of speech? Because, Your Honor, the discrimination, if you, want, if you call it discrimination or, or different treatment, is based on the initial choices of the candidates as to how they're going to finance their campaigns. It's not based on the content of the speech. There's, matching funds do not turn in any way on the ideas or the messages or the viewpoints or the subject matter of the candidate or the independent group's speech or on the identity of the speaker. It turns entirely on what choice the candidate made at the outset. And it is analogous, in a sense, Your Honor, to the situation that's faced by a contributor who's deciding whether to contribute, for example, to a 501c3 or a 501c4 organization. If they contribute to the organization that can lobby, they don't get a tax deduction. But if I'm the independent, if I'm the independent uh, expenditure maker, I haven't made a choice at the beginning. I haven't decided to participate or not participate. What I care about is the issue that's being debated between these two candidates. And, Your Honor, two, two points. You're free, of course, to run an ad that addresses the issue without expressly advocating for or against any candidate without triggering matching funds. And secondly, the candidates made a choice, and if you're the person who is who, who supports the participating candidate, you can't make a contribution to that candidate while you could to the other candidate because of the choice that was made. And you can be responded to, if you run an ad criticizing the non-participating candidate, you can be responded to with unlimited amounts of money from, taken from a political party, the person's own money, whereas, too, if you attack a privately financed candidate, you would only be subject to being potentially responded to with limited matching funds. And it all flows from the voluntary choice that is made at the outset by the candidates about which system of financing is better for them. And this is a system. The matching fund system is a, is a mechanism that the state is, uses in order to be able to offer viable public funding to candidates without wasting public resources. And both the logic and evidence demonstrates that it is, in fact, effective 
both at promoting speech by encouraging candidates to run and, in, in, indeed, particularly resulting in more competitive races for incumbents uh, against incumbents in Arizona um, and promoting speech. And I'd just like briefly to address Justice Alito's question about the ex-ante measurement of the funds. Now, of course, our, we would submit that it's not relevant because we're not in should not be in strict scrutiny and therefore don't need to show this as the least restrictive means, Your Honor. But Justice Alito, an ex-ante system would run substantial risks of underfunding or overfunding races and in particular, and therefore wouldn't serve the state's interest in, in saving money or in properly measuring, uh, but in particular would run the risk of having an incumbent who might have been office for several terms unopposed and not having spent any money in those races. And now you are measuring how much his possibly now viable challenger will get in public funding based upon some minuscule amount of money that the incumbent has needed to, to spend. So I think that that would not serve the state's interest in ensuring that candidates actually have viable public funding. And I see my time has expired. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Phillips. Jay? Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court, uh, I'd like to begin, if I may, with Justice Alito's question to Mr. Phillips about whether uh, the independent expenditure aspect of this statute is content neutral. And I think that uh, looking at this in the context of a multi-candidate race, which most races in Arizona are, uh, is important to set the context because most races in Arizona are not one candidate against another candidate. Every House district in Arizona has two has two members, so every general election has at least four candidates. And it simply is not the case that running an ad in support of a publicly financed candidate does not trigger matching funds. It depends not on what the ad says, not even on who the candidate uh, is being supported, but on whether another candidate in the race takes public financing. So uh, money spent to support one publicly financed candidate may trigger uh, matching funds to another. That's not a content discrimination. That's not a Jay, content Mr. Jay, do, do you agree with uh, the, the, the assertion of Mr. Phillips that this does not favor incumbents? I, I would have thought that if I'm an incumbent with name recognition, I would love to be able to not raise any money and just uh, uh, just take the public funding knowing that if worse comes to worse and I have an opponent who does have a lot of independent expenditures for him, I'll be able to get that money free from the state. I, it seems to me it's very much pro-incumbent rather than anti-incumbent. Oh, Justice Scalia. Which, which one should expect campaign finance restrictions to be. Justice Scalia, I'm happy to, uh, to endorse the sentiment because I think that the petitioner's evidence in this case, the petitioners who were incumbent office holders uh, and say that they didn't spend money because they were uh, — they feared the response that would be paid for uh, by matching funds, I think that their own evidence, including the uh, declaration that they put in at Joint Appendix 364, says, if I can keep the spending down, me as an incumbent, I have a tremendous advantage. That's an Arizona legislator talking to one of the — uh, talking to the to their one of their experts, and that's because uh, and and uh, a race that features low dollar amounts on both sides often advantages an incumbent, and that is the purpose. Uh, uh, that is the purpose of the matching funds provision, right? To allow to allow challengers uh, to be competitively funded. That's the purpose of the initial grant. Your, your answer that your answer depends upon whether you believe that this scheme will keep the expenditures down or rather will elevate the expenditures. And uh, if you believe that it will deter people from making const uh, contributions, it will keep the expenditures down. It's not, a, it's not a matter of deterring people from making contributions, Justice Scalia. Uh, when there are competitive races, the matching funds provisions provides a formula for giving the publicly funded candidate as much money as the, private, as the privately funded candidate that they're competing with. Uh, and in most cases, the incentives on both sides are for more speech, for both sides to get out their message, run their ads, and persuade the voters. In some cases, and that we submit that the uh, anecdotal evidence the petitioners have submitted touches on these cases, the privately funded candidate may have an incentive to keep spending down, but we don't think that's true systemically under this system. We think that the, uh, that the public financing in general and the matching funds provision in, in particular facilitates speech, because the only consequence of, sp uh, of running an independent expenditure, for example, 
at most, the consequence is that another party will, will get to run a responsive ad, and the sum so of speech will be increased. Do you agree that under our precedents, leveling the playing field for candidates is not a legitimate state purpose? We do, Mr. Chief Justice. And that, that, of course, is not what's at work here. Well, I checked the Citizens Clean Elections Commission website this morning, and it say, says that this act was passed to, quote, level the playing field when it comes to running for office. Why isn't that clear evidence that it's unconstitutional? Well, Mr. Chief Justice, uh, whatever the uh, Citizens Clean Election uh, Commission says on its website, I think, isn't dispositive of what the voters of Arizona had in mind when they passed this initiative. The court, this Court has recognized since Buckley that public financing serves a valid anti-corruption purpose, and it does so because it eliminates the influence of, of private contributions on the candidates who take public financing. But would you agree that the matching fund provision by itself does not serve an anti-corruption purpose? Well, Justice Alito, the matching fund provision, the state of Arizona has concluded, is an important way of ensuring that candidates will take public financing because it is a formula of ensuring that candidates will have enough money to run competitive races without wasting the state's money by by. Now, what about that? That's a general question. Answer this if you wish. Don't if you don't want to. And the same goes through your opponent. But as I hear this argument, what's going through my mind is we are deeply into the details of a very complex bill. McCain-Feingold is hundreds of pages, and we cannot possibly test each provision which is related to the other on such a test of whether it equalizes or incentivizes or some other thing, because the answer is normally we don't know. And it is better to say it's all illegal and to subject these things to death by a thousand cuts, because we don't know what will happen when we start tinkering with one provision rather than another. That thought went through my mind as I've heard this discussion. Comment or not upon it as you wish. <laughs> I, I'll comment in this way, Justice Breyer. I think that uh, it's remarkable. <laughs> I appreciate the opportunity, and I will take it. Uh, the uh, parties in this case agree that public financing is itself not objectionable. The parties in this case agree that uh, even a large government grant uh, at the outset, which could be used to fund responsive ads to a, uh, to a privately financed candidate or to independent expenditures, that's not problematic. Uh, anything that anything that uh, uh, makes it more attractive to take the public financing is okay. That's not our I mean, what if what if the state of Arizona says we're not going to give just give money to the other candidates we're going to send out officers of Arizona to argue on behalf of these other candidates now that would be clearly bad right uh, yeah well, and would you come in and say well it's perfectly okay because its purpose is to make public funding attractive to candidates the mere fact that it makes it more attractive does not answer the question whether it's constitutional it doesn't make it, uh, it doesn't just make it more attractive, Justice Scalia. It allows publicly funded candidates to run on the same footing as privately funded candidates because they can spend comparable amounts. That is the uh, is the point that we're making. Not that any not that any incentive the state could dream up would be constitutional. But the mere fact that there uh, that there are incentives and disincentives on both sides, I think, doesn't suffice to answer the question. The fact, as Mr. Phillips pointed out, there may be disincentives to engage in speech uh, when a disclosure requirement takes effect. Anyone uh, who wishes to run an independent expenditure uh, under the system upheld in Buckley, anyone who'd spent over $100 had to disclose. And the Court recognized in Buckley that it was undeniably the case that public disclosure would deter some individuals. And the Court nonetheless didn't apply strict scrutiny because that is not the kind of severe burden that uh, the First Amendment recognizes. The court what you just said was that this law aims to allow publicly financed candidates to run on the same footing as privately financed candidates. Isn't that right? The, the same dollar amount footing, Justice Alito, but there's a right. far different that's mix equal, of benefits that's and equal, That's leveling the playing field, isn't it? It's not, Justice Alito, because no. there is a far different mix of benefits and burdens that a publicly financed candidate takes. And there is an absolute cap under this matching funds provision. There is an absolute cap above which a publicly financed candidate cannot spend, no matter what. Once a publicly financed candidate reaches that cap, which they've agreed to as a condition of taking public financing, independent groups and uh, their opponents can, uh, can raise more money, can run more ads against them, completely without limit. And you, ca you have to take that into consideration when you're considering what incentives and what deterrent effect 
the matching funds provision is, is having. Publicly funded candidates accept certain limits, and one of those limits is an absolute limit on spending. The matching funds provision simply uh, adjusts that limit based on how much is being spent why, in that race and that. Why do you think the Elections Commission then tells us its purpose is to level the playing field? I, can't, I, I don't speak for the Elections Commission, Mr. Chief Justice, but the State of Arizona has said in, in this case that the purpose of public financing, as indeed was the purpose of the presidential public financing system that this Court upheld in Buckley, is to combat corruption. And public financing is a recognized way of combating corruption, and giving out these matching funds is a way of encouraging candidates to participate. Well, in your hypothetical of the uh, uh, participating candidate who spends up to the limit, uh, what happens if independent expenditures are then made on his behalf? Uh, independent expenditures on his behalf don't uh, would trigger uh, public uh, matching funds to any other no, matching no, no, to no, any no. other there, candidate. There's, there's, there's two participants. There's two candidates. One who's a participant. One who's not. The participating candidate spends up to his limit. He can't get any more money. But then he gets a lot of additional support from independent groups. Correct. In a two-person race, uh, just I mean, that could, that could happen. It could. Uh, and the privately financed candidate, unlike the publicly financed candidate, who's the target of independent expenditures, is free to raise more money and use, that, use those additional funds to respond. But, but, the, but the point that you made that the participating candidate is limited leaves out the fact that there can be additional expenditures on his behalf by independent groups. There can be. May I finish the sentence? Uh, there can be, but a — candidate deciding whether to participate, by definition, doesn't know in advance whether there will be independent expenditures on his behalf, and the matching funds provision allows that candidate to know when he elects public financing that he will have enough money to compete. Thank, Thank you, Mr. Jay. Uh, Mr. Moore, you have four minutes remaining. Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice. Uh, with regard to the record evidence of an actual chill, I would note that uh, the record, if this Court in takes the opportunity, as it's obliged to do under the Bose Corp decision, to look at the entire record. Um, the evidence is replete with examples of people not uh, making expenditures, such as Tony Bowie, who refrained from sending out mailers, uh, making auto calls, or distributing information. Uh, John McComish also had uh, a similar response. The Arizona Taxpayers Action Committee uh, did not uh, engage in a a particular campaign because it would have triggered matching funds. Um, but ultimately, when we get right down to it, though, uh, the question is, does this create the same kind of burden in, as, as in Davis? And I could go through point by point Mr. Phillips and Mr. Jay's arguments, but they're all answered by Davis. Davis recognized that this type of interference with the, uh, with the voters' decision as to uh, who to elect to office and the, the purpose of doing that in order to uh, raise the uh, voices of those the government thinks is speaking too little and muffle the voices of those the government thinks is speaking too much is completely illegitimate. Uh, this case is determined by Davis. For instance, the, the argument that uh, Mr. Phillips made that speech has gone up in, uh, in Arizona is, is undone by Davis, which recognizes that Increases in the aggregate of speech cannot justify uh, restrictions on individual First Amendment rights. Mr. Moore, Davis starts off by saying that if uh, what had been triggered was not an inequitable contribution limit raise, but instead both uh, a contribution raise for both candidates, that would have been perfectly appropriate, notwithstanding that that would have put many independent funders to a real choice. The independent funder says, well, I'm not taking any contributions, so that's only going to help my opponent. What's the difference in that case? I think what this Court was recognizing in Davis is that when the, when the, uh, the government relaxes restrictions on free speech, when there's more freedom, that doesn't constitute a violation of the First Amendment. That's not what the government is doing here. It's effectuating its goal of limiting spending and leveling the playing field by burdening and disincentivizing people to in engage in their First Amendment well, rights. Well, as I said, uh, the Davis system that was — the, the system that was specifically approved in Davis would disincentivize many people, many independent funders, from speaking, would put that person to a choice of the kind that you say — that your clients are being put to a choice, the exact same kind of choice? It would not have the unfair uh, trigger that this system has. The entire argument here is not that, that our clients have a concern with too much speech. 
Our concern is that their speech is turning into the mechanism by which their political goals are undercut. So each time they speak, the more work that they do, the more their opponents benefit. That, is, that on, on its face, creates a, a, a common-sense disincentive to engage in more and more political activity. If there are no further questions, Your Honor, I'll uh, thank the Court for its time. Thank you, Counsel. Counsel, the case is submitted.